Well, 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 what is going on? What's happening? How are you doing today? Brian Johnson coming to us from the Center for Independent Living of Broward. He's their chief program officer, and he comes to us bringing all kinds of wisdom. You need to hear this conversation. He lays out his life and how disability has impacted him how his parents really taught him the importance of believing that you can do anything that his non-disabled friends were able to do, how to focus on his strengths, how to use humor as levity in seeing the world and, and what we can and cannot do. He talks to us a lot about how people with disabilities need to come together better to advocate for people with disabilities. He also speaks to us what it's like as a black man, a person of color, to have a disability and how to advocate on the intersection of those groupings and how they come together and what it's like and how to do it in a way that is gonna advocate all causes for all people that are experiencing inequities and how to go about doing it. He speaks to us a lot about what the Center for Independent Living of Broward does, all their excellent programs, his experience as a leader there, and what he has learned from that, some of the life lessons that he's taken away. And he talks to us about what it means to live independently. Brian Johnson is an amazing person. His inspiration to serve others is infectious. He is just a person that is somebody that from the first time I met him, at a governor's hurricane conference, it was a brief encounter, it was something that stuck with me. And then when I got to meet him again, it was under the context of him teaching me and our staff about how to take on a new program for the brain and spinal cord injury program. And he just brought so much knowledge and technical assistance to us, but also delivered it in a way of humility, learning, and helped us to ascend a learning curve that where now we're scaling up a program in a much faster capacity to help other people than we would have if we didn't have this conversation with him. So this is a man who is constantly giving, constantly serving, and has so much wisdom to share all of us. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, welcome, Brian Johnson, to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Tony. Thanks for having me today. You know, upon reflecting before coming into this conversation, I was like, you know, I've heard the name Brian Johnson a couple times in my life. One, I think it's the lead singer of the Beach Boys. Am I? Have you heard that? No, I know there's a member of ACDC that is named Brian Johnson. I do know that no one. Way. Oh, Beach I should have got that one. I should have <laughs> got that one. And then... Um, there's an influencer out there nowadays that I recommend to anyone. He has this um, website called Optimize Me, and mm -hmm. uh, he's just this like modern day philosopher, Brian Johnson. But uh, you're in good company, I believe, here with uh, names, and uh, it definitely has a rock star influencer <laughs> type, and your personality certainly matches yeah. that. And that's why I'm really happy to have you on here. I believe we first met at the Governor's Hurricane Conference. You were there, I believe. I was. I, I was at there representing. I think at that time it might have been the CIL, or it could have been when I was working with Disability Rights Florida. But I do remember. I think we okay. did meet. Yes, at that time. Yeah, we connected. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we connected there, and then you came along and gave us some real good technical assistance for 
a new program. Sills have been taking on working with brain and spinal cord injury program. You had been down the path a little farther than we did. And when we got on the call with several of our staff to learn from you, you were just amazing teacher, super engaging, super knowledgeable and humble. And through these interactions, I just was you know, excited to have any excuse to, to have a conversation with you. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. I always say knowledge is power. So we got to pay it forward. Definitely. Thanks. Oh, I love it. I love knowledge and I love paying it forward. So Brian, if you don't mind, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, you know, give us a little bit of background about who you are. Sure. So um, my background starts, um, I've had a disability pretty much since birth at six months of age. I They discovered cancer on my spinal cord. It was neuroblastoma. They removed it at the T7 level. But in removing it, they sever the spinal cord. And that's kind of been my life, if you will, the only life I've ever known, kind of being in a chair. Thankfully, I had very strong-minded parents who believed just because I had a disability didn't mean I couldn't do anything that my non-disabled peers could do. So for the first couple of years of school, I was in special ed classes, kind of always thought that was the norm that everybody had a disability, if you will, for lack of a better term. It wasn't until maybe about third or fourth grade where I got mainstreamed into regular classes that I did realize that I guess there are people out there that don't have disabilities. And it was kind of an awakening for me in terms of that. But like I said, thanks to kind of my parents that always kept me grounded, they've always had the thought that you could do anything anybody else can do, your non-disabled peers not including. And that's kind of been the foundation for me, if you will. And that's kind of been my mantra all through life. Um, I went on to graduate from high school, went to the University of Miami, and that's kind of where my first four-way in terms of advocacy and just kind of trying to bring awareness and change came about. While attending there, the bookstore used to have turnstiles, and there was no ways for people in wheelchairs to be able to get through them. So what kind of led from that was that us and the Disabled Student Union kind of went to the, to the president at the university and kind of brought this awareness to him. And sometimes change don't go as quick as you want to. So we even kind of stayed a little bit of a, people know that the school was a thing and they did bring about change. And that was kind of my first soiree into this type of work, if you will, and realizing that sometimes you have to be the big mouth to get the change you want to see coming and get the things you want to do. Um, I graduated from the University of Miami with a degree in philosophy and elementary ed. Wow. And really was going to start my career path in terms of working in a school setting where once again, kind of advocacy and issues played a, a role in my life. Um, I was trying to get a job placement. And at that interview, mind you, this is roughly around the beginning of the ADA. They asked me a question that I guess in retrospect, if I would have thought about it, probably would wasn't the most appropriate question. They asked me a question about, I think the question kind of went with, what would you do if there was a fire drill to get the students out the classroom because you have to be able to stand or command the room? And I was ill-equipped for that question. I really didn't know how to answer it because that's the first time anybody's ever presented to me my disability as a barrier. And I just didn't know what to do. So it kind of threw me for a loop, probably didn't get the best answer or any answer and didn't get that job. Um, I ended up working with the Division of Vocational Rehab. And that's how I first found out about Centers for Independent Living and SILS. And they were going to help me with job placement. But during my interview with the worker there, they had job placement assistant. It changed from them asking me about what I want to do to see if I would come on and work at the Center for Independent Living. And that's kind of how I <laughs> they got were smart this to scoop you up. There, yeah. There you go. So that's how I kind of got in this line of work. And it, it was like I said, it was kind of 
eye-opening because like I said, I wasn't aware of all the different disability laws that are out there and kind of this philosophy and this movement mm -hmm. and it's truly changed my life for the better. So I've been involved in this over 20 years plus and it's just been kind of a give and take on both sides, if you will, in terms of them teaching me and then me kind of just sharing my experience and my thought processes with things, if you will. Wow. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back in your, in time here and unpack a lot of what you laid out there for us. Mm -hmm. So you, you first mentioned your parents being super supportive and perhaps with this mindset that you can do anything that your you know, non-disabled peers can do. So I love that. That's a very growth mindset. What else did they have in terms of helping to raise you that really has empowered you to live an independent life? Uh, and I ask this, you know, from the perspective of other parents that might be listening to this or those of us that are parents and, you know, maybe wanting to make sure that we're the best parents that we can possibly be. Yeah. You know, it sounds like they were great. So what, what else about them really has helped to you know, lead you to become the man you are? Of course, of course. Um, I think they were always, especially my mom, just so very matter of fact with things. She like kind of set some ground rules. She's like, listen. Not that she ever wants you to go down this path. It's like, listen, you're not going to be able to be a burglar or a thief. You can't break into people's home because you're not going to think like that. <laughs> so, so humor, like, humor. Right. Yes. Yeah, so certainly. So she's like, listen, the one asset you truly do have going for you is your brain and your mind. She says, use that to its fullest capability. She said, there's nothing that could prevent you from learning. And like I said, that's kind of what always had that foundation of knowledge is power. She's like, listen, learn all you can learn so you can be the best you you can be. And there's really nothing that can't open up for you if you're willing to, to apply yourself and do the right thing. So that was kind of always one of the staples that's always been kind of offered and provided to me. And then, like I said, my mom's always been my biggest advocate. If the school went on a field trip, she assured that they made sure they had at least one bus that had a lift or whatever, so that I could go on that same field trip. I mean, everything that it was, she was preaching about equality. And this is, like I said, before the American with Disability Act, and there really were these type of governing laws that would kind of say that they had to do these things. And more than not, she was able to get the schools wherever I was going to adhere and be kind of complacent and make sure they did the right thing, if you will, certainly. So it yeah. is, it's always been one of those things that's kind of just made me think. I mean, like I said, it's a matter of being creative. Sometimes the solution isn't as easy as you think or right there in front of you, but there are solutions. It's just a matter of having an open mind and trying to think of ways of resolving the problem, if you will. Yeah, creativity. So humor. I, I think that, you know, she brought some levity to your situation there and telling you what you couldn't do. Right. And then focusing on your strengths, right? You know, she was talking yeah. about, you know, you do have your mind, you can use this. I know when I was growing up, there was this cliche out there that like, you're only as strong as your weakest link and, and focus on your weak links. And, you know, now I think the philosophies evolved to like, no, don't waste your time doing that. Maximize and amplify your strengths. Yeah. And, and kind of go towards that. So I think she's well ahead of the curve there. And then you mentioned advocacy, you know, and, and like you said, um, you know, not gauging how old you are, but before, you know, the ADA in 1990, you know, being in school and, the, you know, Individuals with Disability Education Act and other things that are out there, the idea that she would have to advocate for a bus to get you a lift to go on field trips, like nowadays, that'd be hopefully unheard of. Uh, yeah. because, you know, people to know, but not that to say that it isn't out there, of course it likely is. And so what did you learn from her and how to advocate? Cause I'm going to, I'm going to get to where you had to advocate in, in Miami there at bookstores and turnstiles. So I guess, what did you learn from your mom about advocacy that helped to teach you what you're now applying or what you applied when you got to the university of Miami to make sure that you could access their bookstore? 
certainly if I say it, I mean, in the simplest terms, it would be the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I think that's the, the, the yeah. simplest way of putting it, but that I think is oversimplifying it. But I think what it is, is just a matter of asking the question. There's no such thing as a bad question, except for the one you don't ask. So when somebody's telling you something can't be done, you try to find out why it can't be done. And like I said, whether you use the right trigger words or not, the whole thing is if they tell you that, no, trying to find out what you could do to try to resolve it. Okay, fine. We can't do this, but who can I speak to that could help me or get the assistance that I need? And like I said, that was way before I've ever even learned the steps of advocacy in terms of how to be an effective and good advocate. But it was just always something that kind of was always instilled in my mom. It was always just this notion that, all right, so you're telling me, no, who's next? Let me, who, who do I need to go up and speak to to find out or get the answer I want to get? And I think a lot of times people are fearful or take that first no and they just say, okay, I always jokingly uh, tell people I'd rather a, hap, a disgruntled yes than a happy no any day of the week. So, I mean, I'm going to keep pushing till I can get to hopefully where I need to get to, to get the, the positive resolution or the solution I'm looking for. Definitely. Yeah. So I like that you said, you know, the, the squeaky wheel probably is oversimplified because I think nowadays there's a lot of squeaky wheels. There's a lot of squeaking going on yeah. and, and it, it goes beyond that. And it's actually some technical skills that are involved. And I, I like how you pointed out asking the right questions. And then that requires people to have to answer instead of telling them, getting people to be reflective, having to repeat and be responsible and accountable for questions that are being asked and being persistent with that. I like how you're drilling into that as well, you know, as far as like there are some technical skills related to advocacy that need to be taught. What, what do you find in the role that you have now in terms of teaching advocacy to people that are some of the, the more important skills that people need to have in order to advocate for themselves as an individual or in terms of systemic advocacy and trying to make sure that, you know, things are, are changed at a more macro level? Certainly, certainly. What I try to encourage individuals with advocacy and this is probably more on an individual level, is to try to get it in writing. Um, like I said, oftentimes people will get a phone call and then it's done with, and then it becomes a he said, she said game. And it's kind of difficult in those situations, those scenarios to kind of provide guidance and assistance, not to say that it still can't be done, but if you get it in writing more times than not, there has to be some justification or reason. And that gives you something to kind of now investigate, look into and be able to argue. Also, documentation is right huge. documentation yeah. certainly yeah. and then traditionally usually when you get it in writing there's going to be kind of what the follow-up or next step needs to be in terms of how you could appeal the decision or how to go about trying to get it addressed at a higher or different level uh -huh. um setting good timelines if you will letting people know in terms of i'll call back in a couple of days to get a response or see where you are in the process so that they know that you're holding them accountable not just kind of saying, all right, I hope to hear back from you. And then they just kind of brush it to the side. They know they're on the kind of the clock, if you will, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And then going back to that mantra of knowledge, depending on what entity you're working with, ever trying to find what governing rules they kind of adhere to go by, or somebody could help you because not everybody could do that research, but knowing what's out there. And that's why I think SILS and Centers for Independent Living play such a pivotal role mm -hmm. because we do have that knowledge base. We can provide that information and referral, that guidance, that advocacy assistance, what somebody needs to hopefully get them to a more productive understanding. Because let's be clear, sometimes when advocacy is not always going to be a win, but trying to create those win-win scenarios is what we're always looking for. But I think when people have better understanding of what's precipitating those rules, 
hopefully then they can make a better decision themselves also, whether they want to pursue it further or whether they want to take it to that next step or that next level. But I think those are the types of things that are very essential and important in terms of advocacy. Like I said, kind of knowing your rights, getting in writing, making sure you use the chain of command. All those things kind of are the tools that help create better advocacy and better advocates, if you will. I agree. I'm glad you brought up the documentation piece. Uh, that that helps in uh, a the person understanding, but b then you know accountability and transparency of yeah. whatever entity that you're working with. And then I really like how you said getting educated on what what are the rules, what are the laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, if we're in education, it's the you know Individual Disability Education Act. Uh, if it's in housing, it's the Fair Housing Act. If it's in Correct. employment, it's the Fair Labor Laws. And you know how like it's law it's super complicated it's super deep and wide and cumbersome to read through it's got all these legalese terminology that's in there it is a lot to get your head around it's like trying to understand tax law and so yeah you know, and, and i feel like you yeah. know advocates initially especially when they're first starting out don't have the knowledge i mean like i'm still learning about these laws there i mean it is so much to it and I feel like a lot of times advocacy starts with an emotion like this isn't right, you know, which right. is good. You know, that can build some inertia and momentum. And that also needs to accompany the knowledge and wisdom that goes along with things like, yes, this isn't right. Um, this is a systemic issue that has to do with education, employment, housing, uh, whatever it may be. And knowing what the rules are is very important because you could be advocating from an emotionally charged position that really is not going to go anywhere because the laws that are already in place and you got to know them in order to be able to address them or, or, or figure out ways of, you know, mitigating them or getting around them and these other kind of barriers that are out there while still being in compliance. And so advocacy is a real art. It's a real science. And, and I'm really glad you brought the knowledge piece in there about what's out there. And just to piggyback off something you said, Tony, you're right. Um, nobody is going to know everything when it comes to these laws because there's so many minute so details. Much. Things are always changing. They're right? evolving. They're being amended and stuff. So yep. I'm always cautious when somebody tells me, oh, I know everything about such and such law. It's oh like it's, it's not possible no, because no. it's it's always evolving and changing, which is OK. But the fact is, do you know where to go to find the information about that law or who to contact? Because like I said, I think one of the greatest tools I have at my disposal is I don't know everything, but I do know who to contact when I have questions about certain things to get those right answers and stuff like there that. And go. I think that's always an, an important tool to have in your tool belt, so to speak, is having those connections and having those resources readily available to you to help you get those right answers to help people. And, and that's a powerful place to be is to recognize we don't know everything. And, you know, there's power in knowing that we don't know because then we're open to learning. And being there, there's people that say they know it all. How else are they going to learn when they think they already know everything? There's no room to grow or learn. And and even the most expert people that I can point to, you know, lawyers or you know people that are actually certified and seasoned ADA compliance officers will tell you they're still learning. There's things being litigated right now that will impact and change the law. Yeah. There's there's rescissions you know that are made all, almost all the time at the state and federal level to some of these things, and and it's always changing. It's not stable. It's not static. And and so yeah, it's very important to realize that we we don't know everything. 
and that we're always a learner. And I love what you said, having connections, knowing who people are that are further down the path that may have access and those relationships with people that can bring to bear some of the technical assistance that we need to be able to then pass along to people so that they can be better advocates. It's huge. It's huge to have that Rolodex <laughs> full of people. Definitely. There. Yeah, I think we're yeah. dating ourselves, though, Tony. I don't think everybody has Rolodexes anymore, but I think that's all. I know, right? <laughs> oh, thank you for putting me a check there. That's awesome, Brian. So I'm going to then get to, you know, a place that I think, like, I, I want to know that, you know, because right now, you know, I'm in a place where I find inspiration to be very important in the work that we do. When you lay out your life there and how disability has impacted you, and now you're in a position of where you're serving other people, I really look at inspiration you know, as being a really important fuel for, for those of us that are in the human service industry. We're out there helping people and want to be in it for the long game. I'm always interested in people that have been in it for a while, like yourself. Um, how long have you been working for Centers for Independent Living? On and off for about... 16 years and I had a small yeah. break in there where I was working for Disability Rights Florida doing yeah. advocacy work there. So about 16 years. I've so been you've been in the service. Person. Yeah. Yeah. You've been serving people for two decades now. So you're in it for the long game and you've been doing it and you, you're super inspired and still seem very fresh. What is it that fuels your inspiration? That's a great question. I mean, I think just knowing that there's still so much change that needs to come about. I mean, we've made a lot of great strides. There's been a lot of, like we discussed with the American Disability Act from 1990 and other disability laws that are out there that has attempted to level the playing field, but there is so much work still out there to do for people mm -hmm. with disabilities to truly be considered and treated equal. Um, we have all these social justice movements that are going on and oftentimes I don't see the inclusion of people with disabilities in these things, but they're certainly made up in these groups um, I think I saw somewhere a statistic that the largest growing minority group are individuals with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And people don't really think of people with disabilities as a minority group, but we are. And Absolutely. it's something that can happen to anybody at any time. I mean, like I said, some of these other things you're kind of born into. I know nowadays with technology, there's a way to manipulate some of these things, but just people with disabilities have never heard anybody say, oh, I want to be in a wheelchair that you make that look cool. Or I want to have a hearing loss. That's not usually what somebody's huh. mindset is but it can happen to them at any given time. And it does change kind of now their perspective on things. So I think it's important when all these other things are going on that we continue to recognize that individual disabilities, and it's not a, oh me, oh my, looking in a bad scenario, but just that there are a lot of things that still aren't equal in terms of people with disability. There's a lot of things we still don't know when it relates to some individual disabilities. I think hidden disabilities like mental health and things of that nature, still has a lot of stigma attached mm. attached to it that sometimes do have people thinking about it not always in the best light. And I think those are the type of things that keep me going. Those are the charges that kind of make me want to make sure that we continue to try to have appropriate access. Um, I mean, like I said, there's barriers every day working at a center for independent living that I'm sure you also see that we just know that these still need to be fixed. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we've made progress, but there's so much more to work on. So I think that's what kind of keeps me going, that, that fuel that has me going, if you will, all the time. <laughs> I feel you. The, the work is never finished. You know, mm -hmm. uh, for me, a good orientation that I've had as of late is that there is no finish line. If there is a finish line, it's a starting line to the next project. 
there's no arriving, I don't think, at least in my lifetime, I'm not seeing that. And I'm not seeing that as a defeatist kind of thing. I want to be realistic and pragmatic and not just blindly optimistic that this work's going to probably outlive me and maybe generations and maybe never arrive, you know, and, and maybe it's more of the process, the work to be done, that's more the outcome than ever arriving at the place that we're, we're in this to help other people, no matter if it solves everything on a worldwide level uh, or not. It's not the why we're in it. It's, it's actually that, you know, I want to help one person at a time and just keep it in the game for the process itself. That's inspiring me more now yeah. than, than like some end result. We finally arrive. We can now kick back, you know, our feet up, you know, people, there's no inequalities with people with disabilities. There's no more stigma, like you said, for mental health. Like, I'm not sure we'll ever arrive there. Uh, but, but the process yeah. of getting there is the outcome. You know, for me, that's been my inspiration. Along. I that's think that I greater awareness, that greater awareness, exactly that. I think that is the inspiration and what you shoot for, because you're right. Um, I think there will always be a little bit of a fear of the unknown, what people don't necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I won't say if it's right or wrong, but I think that just is always there. But you're right. I think trying to bring about that change for that one individual that is monumental. That is something great. And then you said sometimes dealing with some of these systemic issues, bringing about changes there. But you're right. I think once you kind of put out one fire, you recognize there's another fire. And <laughs> that kind of now gets totally. you going again. And that, yeah. that's just the nature of the beast, definitely. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I like what you also said in there about, you know, and I've seen this myself when we talk about diversity or inclusion or a lot of these other social justice issues of minority populations or marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. Disability seems to be the afterthought. Disability seems to be, you know, the, the, the thing that doesn't jump out first to many people. How can we get other groups, whether they're minority groups or whether they're the majority, the you know, population to, to either recognize or care more about disability? I think it's a, it's a, a large banner, but I think it's just a matter of being out there and when those things are going on. I mean, like I said, there's obviously young ladies with disabilities. So when there's issues that are about trying to equality for sex, you want to make sure that they're in the forefront. When we're talking about race, there's obviously quite a bunch of individuals with disabilities that are in different minority groups. So they need to be at the forefront. I think it's just a matter of having more visibility. Um, how we go about getting that visibility, I'm not entirely certain as yet. But I think that's where it starts at, is that we have to be at the forefront in terms of if we want to make sure that we are included in these conversations. Um, Far too often, I think we get too fragmented and marginalized that we don't think of of a more holistic and inclusionary approach when we're kind of trying to address some of these things. But I I mean, like I said, I think that's just probably a tip of the iceberg. I think, like I said, people with disabilities regrettably, we have our own set of things. And that's why I do like centers because we do work cross disability. We're not necessarily interested about one specific disability group because we know that there are some things that kind of segue over. Employment is important for whether you have a physical disability, mental health, learning or sensory. We know those are universal truths. Same thing with the housing market. There are some, there are certain areas that are universally gonna be held true. And I think once we start taking that type of approach, it will assist us in regards to trying to make sure that some of these social justice reforms that we are discussing, that people with disabilities are also included in those sort of things as well. 
Well, I, you know, I, I think you've hit on a couple things there. Perhaps either are reasons why disability isn't all you know thought of at first or included or recognized. You know, first, like you were saying, the largest minority group, demographically speaking, out there are people with disabilities. When we look at this, you know, across the board in the general population, the percentage of people with disabilities is quite large. And if people don't have a disability, they know someone that has a disability. If they don't have one, they're likely going to acquire one, whether it's a permanent or a temporary disability. It's part of the human condition and something that affects everybody, regardless of male, female, race, political affiliation, religious affiliation, where you fall in the family, you know, membership, whatever it is, it's it just all groups are, are affected by this. So, you know, I think you're pulling a thread there when you talk about the prevalence and incidence rates of disability, very, very large. And I think you're also hitting on something when we talk about, well, who wants to stand under the banner of disability in terms of like, you know, no one wants to necessarily be in a wheelchair or have bad eyesight or be blind right. or to be deaf. And like, if people had a choice, the preference would be to not have it. And it seems like, you know, for me in my path, I did run from disability at the beginning. I had a disability, it's low vision, it's been progressive, but I could pretty much keep it, not have to disclose it many times unless I'm reading or navigating and people seeing me bouncing the walls or something like that, couldn't maybe tell. And, and, I, and I wouldn't be forthcoming in it. I was embarrassed by it. And I've gotten to a point in my life where I've become more okay within my own skin and sharing it. And now getting to the point where, okay, I want to you know, be able to talk to people, let them know I do and, and that it's important to me. And I'm more now willing to be under this tent, this banner. And so I, I do see that being part of it. And I've seen this in others. We run from disability, even if we have it. Yeah. How do we get people to... To, to, to come underneath the banner, to be more open about it in the sense that it's going to help to, uh, for people, other marginalized groups to recognize it and embrace it. I think you touched upon it a little bit. I think some of it is vanity. I mean, myself mm. included, it's funny. I'm in a wheelchair and for the longest I used to never like wearing shorts. Like I don't want to show my legs off and stuff like that. I know it sounds uh -huh. like a silly, trivial thing, but I really do think it's sometimes it, just the, the mindset is like, you don't want to bring more eyes on you or more awareness of the situation. You do everything you're in your power to try to cover it up, especially when you have what's yeah. kind of perceived as those hidden disabilities. But I think it's just really truly learning to embrace it. I think you made a very eloquent point in your speech that as people are living longer, as we're aging, people will acquire disabilities. As science is making great strides, things that would have regrettably probably killed people in the past, they're able to hopefully help them recover, but they may now have some disabling conditions. So I think it's just a matter of, I don't know if embrace is the right word, but being aware that just because you have a disability doesn't mean it's the end of the world for you. I always say there's like two trains of thought when it comes to people with disabilities, those that want the cure or are searching for the cure, and those that do kind of somewhat recognize this is my new normal, but what do they do now? And that's the mm. thing for those who have acquired it in life, I don't think they always know what resources are out there because they don't know what they don't know. So I think trying to make sure that they become more cognizant and aware of resources out there and some of the daily struggles, some of the things that we've discussed in terms of some of these barriers and making sure that, I mean, I guess we're like, term, you check off multiple boxes. Nobody's only just one thing. So, I mean, like I said, I'm an African-American male who also happens to have a disability. But if there's an issue, I would wanna make sure that I'm able to present on all fronts. I don't think it's a one or the other type thing. So when you're, I'm bringing awareness 
for Black Lives Matters or issues of that nature, also make sure that I also include there. Hey, also, guess what? People with disabilities also have these same struggles. They also have these same things that they need to make sure are being addressed and people with disabilities as a whole, not just people with spinal cord injuries or just people with this. I think it has to be a more inclusionary kind of thought process. And that is one of the things that I do love the best about Centers for Independent Living is that we do look at all disabilities. Um, and it's not to knock any group that is specializing in just one. I mean, they have their specialties and that is equally important and needed. But I think the fact that SILs have this great power of being cross disability and trying to make sure that we're all inclusionary, I think is a great thing that that only powers the disability cause and the disability movement, definitely. I think that's an excellent point. I'm going to get to that one too, uh, about, you know, the compartmentalization and you know, kind of like people within the disability community tend to get tribed up in the, in the yeah. you know, specific disabilities. But first I want to, I want to acknowledge where I think you made a good point about myself as well, where, yeah, the reason I ran from it was vanity, my ego worried about what other people might think of me, you know, is it, is it huge, was a huge barrier for me. You know, mm -hmm. I got to own that. You know, here I am worried about what other people might judge me as or think about me and this, that and the other. So I ran from disability because of my ego, my vanity. And, and that still, you know, can be a challenge here and there, yeah. you know, when I'm when I'm out in public or, you know, we've had other guests on that, you know, have physical disabilities and are out in public and are feeling self-conscious. It's not to say that they're wrong and they're bad for having an ego or being vain. It just means we're human. I think we all have this side of us. Our need for acceptance and our fear of rejection is real. Human nature. No, definitely. I mean, like I said, you want to conform. You want to fit in. Definitely. I think that's, you're right. That's kind of what ultimately most people look to and strive for. Definitely. It's almost like we got to come up against that primordial fear of being rejected and, and need of being accepted to then become, you know, come under that banner. Yeah and do that. And I'm getting better nowadays. I still got some room to grow, but I'm also trying to encourage other people to come along, which for me, I find to be a little bit of a tricky thing because I wasn't always there. And here I am trying to encourage people, but I don't want to, yeah. I want to, like you were saying, I think earlier, you know, the comfort zones where we grow. Um, yeah. And so to help get people out of their comfort zone to grow into that space, but also do it in a way that's not going to also beat them down and make them feel worse about themselves either. You know, don't, yeah. there's probably a sweet spot into, you know, pushing people there. That's the thing, yeah, teetering that spot. Because I mean, like I said, once, I mean, when you have a disability, mostly you always have to be an advocate, but there are always teachable moments, but at the same time, you don't want to feel like mm. you have to always be on either. It, I, I, right. I, it's funny. Sometimes I go out <laughs> with some of my non-disabled friends and now they'll see things and, they get sometimes more worked up over it than I do. Like somebody will park who doesn't have the decal out. And yeah, uh -huh. does it irk me? Of course it irks me. But I mean, I never know the situation. Maybe they just forgot to put it up or maybe something happened. I mean, you never know. So it's like, sure. but they get so worked up. And I was like, so sometimes kind of wavering between super advocate and just kind of yeah. try to make sure that when you do see something that you can bring awareness to it, that you also do that as well. It's like, you don't need to be necessarily always in the forefront, but I think we do have a certain obligation, especially with what we do, that when we do see something that we know is wrong, to try to at least address it. And as I said, how you go about yeah. addressing it is different. And you're right, it is that teetering act that we do sometimes in terms of how much advocacy versus education versus sometimes, do I really want to address this at this time? Maybe I'll leave it alone, but at another time and day, I may come back yeah. to it if I see it happening a lot. So yeah. It's a art. It's yeah. an art. You know, advocacy is a science and it's an art. Yeah. 
And there's a bit of harmony there. You're right. You know, to be able to, you know, when to be super advocate, when to maybe just hold our tongue and maybe when to kind of be somewhere in the middle. And yeah. There's this harmony there that I think is needed. So I'm going to get into where uh, you open the door on in terms of, you know, how there's different disability groups. And I do think it's wonderful that Centers for Independent Living take on all comers, all disabilities. And that does make us unique in a lot of ways because, you know, for good reason, there are specializations out there. You know, you've got Division of Blind Services, yes. you know, you've got Centers for Autism, you know, you got all different types of agencies that specialize, which I think is good. Nothing against them at all. And at the same time, I can see it in terms of a disability culture, it's interesting how we tend to, you know, kind of get grouped up and see each other as the other within our own communities. And I don't think that necessarily helps with the overall cause. And at the same time, I can see why, you know, it, it might be good to relate if I'm deaf with other people who are deaf and, you know, see, you know, and I know many, many people who are deaf who have told me, you know, they don't think they have a disability. It's more of a, you know, communication language barrier. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. I see that being empowering. And at the same time, I see that being fragmenting the overall cause. You know, when we look at, in general, the general population of disabilities, I've seen, you know, developmental disabilities being very strong within the last couple of decades and getting a lot of resources themselves for serving people with de developmental disabilities, much needed. And there's other disability groups that think that, well, that's taking away from us receiving resources, Correct. whether it is or not. I don't know. You know, and then I see, you know, people that use wheelchairs saying, what's going on over there with that coop? And, and so I feel like in some ways that compartmentalizing can be good. And then in other ways, on a more macro level, it could be really hindering the overall. So talk to me there again, you know, how we can come together better as an overall community to advocate where, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. How, how can we respect that compartmentalization and the upside of it while at the same time mitigate the downside of it as well so that as a general population, we can, we can advance? That's a long-winded question. So. No, it's a, it, but it's a good question. And I think, like I said, I'm trying not to oversimplify it, but I kind of view it as some of these other social justice issues and stuff like that, is that, yes, you do want to be able to individualize it. You do want to appreciate and recognize the differences but you also want to see the commonality and see that there are some significant things that it does or can be worked on together. Um, as I just, and as you shared, I think Tony, in your synopsis there, you were talking about like these pots of monies and that's difficult. I mean, if you're an agency that is working with a specific group and there's one grant that comes out and you know, five or six other agencies are applying for, they have different specialities, or if you will, it does make it hard because now you are yeah. human nature, a little upset. It's like, well, why did on the blank agency get it but we didn't get it now they're gonna yeah, i mean so yeah. so that makes sure. a lot of sense and i get it i think some of it is just kind of that cooperative nature trying to find some commonality and finding things that we have in common like i said i think like i said there are certain things that we know to be relatively true housing employment those are things that are difficult for anybody regardless of disability right. so those i mean universal it, challenges right. yeah so trying to find those common challenges that we could all agree upon I think is a great way to kind of hopefully try to combat some of that. And then just kind of having some open dialogue and conversation with some of the principal parties that hopefully, like I said, won't lead to kind of bashing or trying to go against the grain. It's like, listen, let's have some open dialogue. What, what do we know are things that need to be addressed? Like I said, those transportation. I mean, there's several things I think most people could agree upon that certainly can be better for people with disabilities. 
that would be ideal to hopefully be a starting point. Like I said, where within housing, there might still be some differences, but I, I think there's more things we have in common then we have differences. It's just a matter of trying 100%. to discuss those common yeah. things to get it to work. Right. Will, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think you're hitting gold there. So, you know, regardless if you're you're blind, you use a wheelchair, you're deaf, you have a developmental disability, mental health, whatever it might be, housing, transportation, employment, these are universal challenges. Yeah. And so I, I think of also when I went into education, and would be responsible for providing accommodations to students. Mm -hmm. I looked at the different kinds of accommodations that were out there, and regardless of disability type, there were some universal accommodations that cut across all right. disabilities, right? There's you know, a note taker, someone that was legally blind or who had a cognitive impairment would need. There was extra time, which nearly every disability group might need, or right. a, a space that's quiet you know, and doesn't have a lot of... So, so it's almost like we universally need the same accommodations, regardless of disability, many times. Right. Not always. Absolutely not always. I like what you're saying. Like we have more in common the issues, and usually the solutions, the accommodations are universal. And and so I love where you're where you're you're heading with that. I think that's a really good one there. Yeah. You know, to to point out that that there's we have more in common to do different. And I also think you make an excellent point where. I think the system in the way of it does do some division, especially say at an agency level, like you were saying. So we got five different disability groups that are going for the same grant. So maybe they award two awards. And so there's always this pizza metaphor that gets put out there. It's like, we're all going for this pizza and we want a, a slice of the pie. Um, and there's only so many slices that can go around. Yeah. And so there's this one idea that like, well, we want to, for our agency, get the biggest slice we can out of that pie. And there might not be some pie left for other people. And then there's this idea in philosophy, well, can we just grow the pie? You know, can we make the pie bigger so everybody can get a slice? And, but I think in the real world, there isn't large enough pizza for everybody to get a slice. And so I think in the practical world, we are pitted against each other in a very competitive way. And that probably leads to a lot of the division between the disability groups and certainly agencies that are out there that cause the turf wars. So I think that you make a really good point there. I also want to go in on you know something that you mentioned before, because I don't know a lot and I seek to learn more. So as you mentioned, being a black man with a disability, you know, has a lot of intersection there of challenges. So if you don't mind, maybe explain to me what that is like for you and how perhaps being an advocate as a black man and as a person with a disabilities can be navigated, could be understood from uh, someone like me who has no idea. What, what is it that you can teach me and others about what it's like? Certainly, certainly. Now, keep in mind, obviously, I don't speak for all Black men, but I'll kind of give my perspective and some of the dealings that I see and kind of just my, my thoughts with it. I think there is a certain distrust sometimes with governmental things and stuff of that nature sure. for African-Americans, some warranted, some maybe not as much so. So they don't always necessarily take advantage of resources and things that are available to them. Also, I think sometimes how the disabled or how the African-American community, I say, should say, look at disabilities is a little bit different. Sometimes, um, especially in, um, like I said, I would say Caribbean cultures, there's a little bit of a kind of hide that person. They don't want to necessarily have that person on it in public. They don't necessarily think they need to necessarily have access to some services. So kind of trying to dispel 
some of those myths and those thought process, letting them know that, no, you do have rights to access the same services and things of that nature. That does play a role in that. Um, like I said, trying to get rid of some of that distrust or that belief that maybe some of these systems aren't really geared towards them, that also plays a role. I think sometimes, like I said, they hear a no and they're more inclined to be like, okay, and that's the end of it, not realizing that they can appeal decisions, they may have other rights um, and things of that nature. So I think it, it's a two kind of edge sword, if you will. One is the nature or the thought that they kind of, I won't say are embarrassed, but maybe a little more so are embarrassed of the disability and don't want to necessarily bring any attention or awareness to it and kind of find ways themselves to cope with it. But then sometimes there is a distrust in terms of governmental entities and agencies and what they really can provide or offer. So there's not as much mm -hmm. um, desire to want to access it. So I, I think educating goes a long way, kind of explaining, like, once again, the tools that these agencies have to offer and why they're set up to help is always important and significant. Um, one of the programs that I did many years ago when I was at the center was a program in conjunction with the Urban League of Broward County, where we actually went into specific geographical areas to find minorities with disabilities and try to help them kind of understand some of these programs that are out there and how they really can assist them. Sometimes somebody gets bad information from a family friend or somebody who did it, but maybe because they didn't do it correctly, it didn't work for them. So now that's just the belief of the neighborhood or that area that, oh, well, you know, you can never get and I'm just picking, making this one up, but you can never get social security benefits because if you're black and have a disability, they don't, that's not for you. And obviously we know that can be farther from the truth that you can access those things, but it may just be a matter of providing more accurate information or more stuff to help kind of with the process. So it is a matter of, I think, educating some of these groups and trying to dispel some of these rumors and myths. I know those are very large misnomer in the African-American community with regards to mental health and stuff like that, and maybe not always wanting to access services and things of that nature. Like I said, summer is getting better. I think there's a greater sense of awareness and recognizing and realizing that, that you have to take a holistic approach with things. I mean, like I said, so I, I think people do recognize the significance and the importance of mental health and mental awareness, but I think there are still some of the stigmatism that's attached to it sometimes or oftentimes that people don't seek the assistance or help that's out there that could probably help alleviate some of these things before they exasperate themselves and get into a more higher level, if you will. Wow. So thank you for sharing. There's a lot there. Um, yeah. So when you say advocate, you know, is it something so, so for unemployment, black men have a higher unemployment rate than the general population? Yes. People with disabilities have a higher unemployment rate with the general population. And demographically speaking, the most impacted group from the, the COVID pandemic in terms of employment are black men with disabilities. They have the yes. highest unemployment rates. So when we address the issues, say, of unemployment, and this could be you know, applied to education, health outcomes, the justice system, whatever it may be, I think it can almost be broken out like that you know, to those three different categories. How do we advocate? Do we advocate in those buckets where we're saying we want to address in the unemployment rate specifically uh, for, you know, do you put your hat on and just for black men? Do you just put your hat on and no, we're going to address disability or kind of going into doing both? And now I ask this because I've heard from, from people um, that, you know, we don't want to water down the issue, you know, kind of a thing. Um, so, you know, again, I'm trying to learn the best way to advocate. Certainly. What is it? Yeah. Certainly. 
it's funny. And I'll be honest with you, Tony. I think if you ask me this question every different day, I might give you a different answer each time because I, yeah. I, I think there's gotcha. some validity to argue for it strictly based off race. There is some validity to argue it strictly based off disability. And then there is some validity to argue it from both sides of it, if you will, in terms of race and disability, because you're right. I mean, the, the statistics are there and I'm not a large, large statistic guys, but I do think it helped drive home points and help you when you're going in to discuss with people. But I think it really does depend. And also depends who you're speaking with. I guess that also plays a role in it. If I'm talking maybe to a disability organization, Believe it or not, I might actually more hammer home the point about the race piece of it, because I know they know the disability side, so they may not be necessarily aware of the race piece. So that might be what's gotcha. most important for them. Conversely, if I'm talking with a agency that strictly is with race, I might more hammer home the disability side, because for them, they may not be aware of that. So I mean, so it, it and it varies. It really does vary. I think, like I said, you can't pocket it all the time. It will depend who you're speaking with. And I think that's the the luxury we do have with this job is that we know the cookie cutter approach doesn't work. One size doesn't fit all. You can't always kind of go in with the same mindset and mantra. Sometimes you do have to kind of switch it up and change it depending on what it is you're trying to get. I mean, there's no steadfast rule of thumb, but you're right. I think there's some universal truths that we're starting to recognize and see. And uh, the answer kind of lies somewhere, I guess, in the middle, if you will. It's kind of almost like a triangle. So all three need to be kind yeah. of touched upon to get where you need to get to. It's interesting. It goes back to this art, I suppose, and, and being able to do it. And I think I'm, I, and I don't even know if it's a good question I'm even asking, because it seems to almost categorize things. And, and like, you're almost saying, like, I'm cookie cuttering this out in some ways, I think, like to a, an approach that's more, I don't know, it seems like it's a formless thing in some ways, you know, like, yes, it, it has to do with things that are concrete, like race. Yes, it has some things to do with that are concrete, like disability. And then when we intersect those things together, some of this is nebulous, formless, and we're trying to make it concrete and where it is concrete and tangible, but also like, there's some things out there that are so abstract and, and unseen, and they're more of a force than they are like almost an institution sometimes. I don't know. Like, again, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. No, and as I appreciate it. I think you ask great questions. So yeah, like I said, it's not to minimize the question, but I do think it's kind of an ebbing flowing thing. It's kind of like air. It could take the shape of any container yeah, you put it in, formless. so to speak, if you yeah. will. Yeah, it really is formless. So, so that's why, like I said, my answer probably will change. Like I said, if you ask me the same question tomorrow, I might right? give you a completely different answer because the variables change. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, the variables yeah. aren't always the same. So based off... I think you'll be touched upon this when we're talking some of our other conversation based off the statistic and the information we have at hand, the answer may change, but I don't think yeah. there's like one step that's really say, Oh, when you go in there, always talk this because that may not be what they need to hear. That may not be the point that needs to be brought across at that time. But I know as you were discussing, there are some universal truth. There are some things that we kind of can see statistic wise that kind of are what they are, but how do we go about solving it may vary depending on, who and what we're talking about at that moment.
and then going in on, on these solutions, say, so, so say, you know, any of these systems, whether it's education, whether it's employment, whether it's housing, whether it's transportation, whether it's health outcomes, whether it's uh, justice system. So say we can move the needle on some of the outcomes. We can get higher graduation rates for people with disabilities of color. Um, mm -hmm. We can get higher unemployment rates. You know, maybe we can work on those like concrete, tangible outcomes. It's been said that the deeper issues is that it's more of an issue of the heart. Yes, there's issues of the minds and people and getting more educated about stigmas and stereotyping and discrimination. But the heart of the matter is that the hearts of the people and their attitudes and beliefs about the other and not seeing each other as ourselves. Right. So we can, we can talk about making systemic changes. We can talk about educating people along these issues. How do we get to the heart of people to make change? Good question. I think it's preventive. I mean, I think preventive is easier than corrective, meaning if you could try to get to it earlier, I think the greater likelihood you will have at obtaining some of these successful outcomes. Perfect example, once again, in the academy, always circling back to centers, but our new core service is about transition. I think youth transition is key to all this. I think oftentimes when we're getting a lot of our consumers, they're already left the school system and now they're already X number of years behind. The earlier you could get with them to help educate their families and them, try to help them in terms of making great life choices and trying to help them on that journey into quote unquote adulthood is a greater likelihood of having a successful career, a greater likelihood of putting them on the path to going to hopefully something post-secondary and all those things that will help address some of those barriers. Now, I'm not silly enough to think that's the end all be all in terms of the answer, but I do think also you do have to have some good success stories and success stories of the program, not individuals. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but I really think people need to realize the program work because regrettably for better or worse, not every individual that goes through the program is going to succeed. And it's no of fault of their earth. There might yeah. be barriers that prevent them. They may not get it right then at that time. But if you could show a proven program that has a proven track record that can present good results, I think people are more susceptible to buy into it and will mm. hopefully realize that, all right, I get it. I understand what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to do. I kind of could go behind that versus let me introduce you to Brian and then mm -hmm. I don't succeed. Well, now what are you going to think? You're going to think, well, this program was not a good program because Brian didn't succeed. It. Well, no, the program mm -hmm. is good. Just there might've been something else going on with me at the time why I wasn't able to fully take advantage of what was being offered to me. No program has a hundred percent success rate. And that's the thing. But I think regrettably for some <laughs> yeah. people, when they get that yeah. Bad tomato, sure. rotten apple, whatever you want. They yeah. blame it on the program versus recognizing, no, there might've been something else going on with that individual. What we're really looking to try to accomplish is a program that has a working model that yields successful results and the proof, if you will, is in the pudding, so to speak. So that's why I think yeah. sometimes people get a little stuck in, in that the minutia of it of, well, this person didn't succeed. So I don't know if this program has a success rate. Well, no, the program still has a success rate. Just there was might've been something else that needs to be looked at or done to tweak. Yep. Right. To help, if you will. So, yeah. So I'm going to go back to heart and then come forward to the programs like we're talking about here. So okay. I, I like your answer about prevention and starting early, especially with hearts. I feel like in the, in the formative years, as people are going through, you know, growing up in the lifespan, you know, elementary, middle, high, you know, high school, of course, young mm -hmm. adulthood, those are really important times to get into the hearts of people 
because those are very formative times and emotionally charged and and then just the you know brains developing so is our heart and what was going into the heart is it good things bad things and uh could be a really good time to to kind of really you know set the trajectory for where people's heart set is at for the rest of their life because those are impressionable years so i think you make a really excellent poison on that end and then as you you know wrap that into programming uh, I think this is a good time for us to segue into you talking to us about what is the Center for Independent Living of Broward all about? Um, what, what do you all do there? And then getting into specifically uh, what your involvement has been throughout your tenure there uh, at the Center for Independent Living there in Broward. So talk to us about your center. Talk to us about your role and what you do. Certainly. So the Center for Independent Living of Broward like all centers, we do the five core services in terms of trying to assist people in achieving their goals of independent and self-sufficiency. What we've tried to be is get a pulse in the community and find out what are some of those missing variables and things that people need. So we have programs that focus on housing, whether it's placement or barrier removal, so people can stay in their homes and not have to go into assisted living facilities or nursing home type settings, if you will. We have employment trying to help people who are on social security, disability insurance, get off of that and get back into the workforce, get retrained, things of that nature. Mm. And we offer technology. Technology to me is always a really big, large Huge. leveling of the playing field. I think that levels the playing field like nothing else for people with disabilities. So we're very big and large in terms of trying to provide technology assistance. We do have youth services programs. We are the designated high school high tech site for awesome. our center. So yeah, yeah. Our, for our area. So we do enjoy that. Yeah. Um, for those that don't know, that program provides young adults with disabilities to try to get them into the STEM related fields. And I think that's awesome because mm -hmm. I, we want young adults to have careers, not jobs. And there is a difference between mm -hmm. those two things. So we're sure. always very large on that, if you will. Sure. And then, I mean, like I said, we and honestly, we just try to be the the voice for the voiceless and kind of that problem solving entity. So if there's a program that we think maybe the community needs that's not being offered in the area, we wanna be that. One of the other great programs we've created at our center is a program that we're trying to create the future leaders and advocates of tomorrow. It's called Center for Independent Living Broward Leadership Program. Nice. Um, it's a 10th month program where we actually do have to select people to participate in it. So they give us an essay kind of why they would wanna be in it. Um, we try never to turn away people, but we also don't want the classes to be too large, but it's essentially creating the future leaders, the future advocates. Um, they get to work on a community project. Some of the projects they've done in the past was an accessible gym, an emergency preparedness brochure. Um, they've done a video about the importance of hiring people with disabilities. So we kind of, like I said, we, we, we want to have ownership and we want to give back. We know while SILs are great, no seals could be everything in the area. So we do need mm -hmm. the participation of others and trying to get people to help us out on some of these endeavors and stuff like that. Um, me as the chief program officer, I mean, my role is to kind of make sure that all these programs are successful as much as possible. But as a seal, you know, you wear multiple hats. So oftentimes I'm chipping in, helping out, doing things, helping people with programs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy that sort of stuff. That to me truly is the fun of working at a center is working with customers and helping consumers achieve yeah. their goals that they've identified. I mean, you can't beat that feeling where somebody for I the know. first time created a resume or learned how to use the bus or got their place or whatever it is that they've kind of identified oh, as their huge. goal. And that's Prices. the cool thing, their goal. So definitely. So I love that. Definitely. Yeah. 
Do you have any individual level success stories of people that have come to your center that you've either worked with or the staff that you supervise have worked with in terms of reaching any of their independent living goals? Oh, certainly. Oh my goodness. More than I could probably care to like. Feel free to cherry pick anyone. I I love hearing success stories and it is priceless when you're able to serve and, and, and help someone achieve their goals. No, it certainly is. There certainly is. Um, there is one customer I'm thinking of that Honestly, I think pretty much ran the gambit of pretty much almost all our programs. So they they originally originally came to us through our high school high tech program. Funny Uh story. I was the first actual high school high tech coordinator. So I actually was the one that when we went for the grant and we got it, was the one that was doing the teaching. So I worked with him at that junction. He was very successful. I was kind of thinking because he was like, I think our first recruit for the program. So he graduated. He's has his family and stuff like that. And everything was great. Um, I left. So it was funny. I actually left. Um, when I came back, he was in need of employment assistance. So we helped find him a job. So, I mean, we, we rolled him with vocational rehabilitation. Um, he got certified to do security work, something he really wanted to do and stuff of that nature. And he was able to get um, gainful employment with that. A couple of years, more years pass. Then he comes back to us. Um, he, he, he and his girlfriend, they have a, a couple of kids. But they were in need of assistance with trying to now find housing. The housing mm-hmm. they had was astronomical. They couldn't continue affording it and stuff like that. So we ended up coming through our housing program and we were able to assist him on getting one of the vouchers. And he actually got housing placement. And as far as I know, <laughs> knock on wood, so <laughs> haven't heard yeah. back from him. But it, awesome. and, but that's those are the joys that I love because we're not a one-time thing and then you're done with us. We have some consumers that I consider consumers for life. And I mean that in a good way, meaning we'll sure. probably hear from them multiple times. But then we do have some consumers that, like I said, is one and done. And that's equally well, because like I said, it's what they've identified as the goal. And I think that's what the most significant and important things is about our program, because there's some customers I see. And I guess me just being greedy and selfish, I always want more. I think people could do more sometimes, but you know what? Mm-hmm. It's not what I want. It's what do you want? So we've right. helped them achieve things that they're looking to achieve that like I said, and they're happy with it. And that's what I love about this job is that it's it's trying to help people achieve the happiness they want. Yeah. Sometimes they come back to us again. And when they do, that's equally well too. But if they don't, just kind of knowing we put that smile on that person's face and we're able to assist them is always a great story. Definitely. It's priceless. I, I love your inspiration to serve. And so I also want to ask you a question because you, you occupy a role of leadership there at your center. You know, yes. So you supervise staff and you mentioned how you have leadership programs. Talk to me about some of the lessons that you've learned as a leader and what are some essential leadership skills that people need to have? So I think one of the things that I've learned and I've probably got it better as a leader is, and there's no way to minimize this, is that Sometimes not everybody can work as quickly as you want them to work, meaning Mm. there are some levels to this. Like I said, I think we have a great staff, but sometimes I think I want to move things faster than it could be moved. So kind of Mm. appreciating what's going on is always a good thing for me in terms of that. And then with staff, kind of some of the lessons I learned is just holding them accountable. I mean, like I said, we do ourselves a disservice as an agency, as a program, if I don't hold staff to the same level that I would think we would hold our consumers and stuff like that. So if we mess up, let's take ownership of it. I don't believe there's ever anything that's ever wrong. I think it's just maybe something we need to fix. That's always mm-hmm. been my mantra and mindset with staff is like, all right, listen, we have a situation. How do we solve it? Um, mm-hmm. There's really no time 
to sit there and worry about what went wrong. I think is it a learning experience. Can we learn from it? Can we improve upon it? Uh, the delivery of services. If we could do those things, we are good to go um, in terms of stuff. But I mean, like I said, I think trying to give staff a little bit of the autonomy they want so that they can learn, obviously, but being mm-hmm. there if they do have questions is always equally important. But at the sure. same time, just kind of making sure that we get better. I think we owe it to ourselves and to our consumers to always be striving to get better at what we do. Wow, fantastic. I love how you are bringing into accountability as a teachable moment, not to say people are wrong, but to actually like, oh, what can we learn from this? How can we grow? Not having this idea that we're the, again, there's never 100% success rate with a program. So that means we're always learning and we're always growing as agencies, all of us. And for me, you know, being a leader is also like me being accountable and saying, oh, you know, I got it wrong here. I could have communicated better there and those kind of things and creating that safe space for everybody to say, oh, well, okay. You know, could it be better there? And I love what you're saying as far as, you know, laying out there, well, well, here's the problem, here's the challenge, here's the issue. What do you all think we should do? In, instead of yeah. saying, this is how it needs to be done from A to Z, onward and upward, go. And that to me, when people and leaders are like yourself are able to do that, people then can interject some creativity, some autonomy, some innovation and ownership of what's being in and buy-in. Yeah. You know, to, I, to buy in. I think that's the thing. They, there's a feeling of buy-in when they're able to be part of the process, I think, yeah. versus me just dictating right? or mandating mm. to them what needs to be done, I think. So, yeah. 100%. 100%. That's a huge one. Yeah. So what are some learning lessons that you have taken away from yourself personally that you've had from your experiences at the Center for Independent Living? You know, life lessons I'm talking about. Well, I think one that you touched upon, even like the you know, you're sharing by yourself, that I'm not always right. I have to come to that realization that I make mistakes too. Nobody is perfect. So in that regard, sure. I think that's kind of a good lesson that I've kind of learned. Um, belief in somebody. That, that's another important thing I've learned. Sometimes somebody will tell me something and for better or worse, I may not necessarily think it's going to work. But you know what? Sometimes you do have to allow people the opportunity to mess up too. That's learning experience. I think 100%. there's a, yeah. a constant desire to want to fix things versus sometimes allowing somebody the opportunity to see if mm. they can fix it themselves. So that's that's been one of the bigger ones I think I've learned as of late and recently. And it's not even in a bad way, just yeah. sometimes you got to just figure out like, you know what, let somebody else kind of get a sense to see if they can figure out where they need to, what the correction should be and stuff like that. So that's been yeah. another one. Um, that's huge. Another life lesson, I think, is like I said, that things don't always move at the rate you want it to move at sometimes. I think that is, has yeah. been a huge I, one. I feel you there. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that's another huge one. Just kind of realizing that even though I may be wanting to do it at this rate, sometimes I got to slow down a little bit or speed up. Sometimes I might be lallygagging and someone's already ahead of the game and I'm like, oh, good Lord. Okay. Let me, right? let me get my piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Done so that's how this yeah. can be the case. So I think those are like some of the things I've kind of learned. And also regrettably, I think, during this COVID time is learning to turn it off. I think far too often I'm always thinking and that's been detrimental to me as of late. I think my brain just hasn't stopped. I think I used to have a better outlet for things. Mm. And when you don't have an outlet, you can't be the best at what you're doing because if you're always going, there's no recharging of the batteries to be better at what you're trying to accomplish. So that's been, I think the hardest one and I'm still struggling and learning to get better at that one is that 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 nature of this isn't 24 7 
Um, there has to be some off time for this. Has to be some vacation time. I'm notoriously bad. I don't really try to take vacations, but I think that's an ego thing on my behalf. I think it's like one of those things. Well, huh. if I'm not there to do it, who will do it? You have to have faith in others. Got to have faith in others. I really believe that. So that's part of some of it too. Wow. You got some nuggets there. So, so having faith in others, allowing them to do their thing, even if you, you know, and letting go, right? Faith and letting go, I think go kind of hand in hand. And and even if you see that it might not work, letting them learn that it doesn't work their own way versus you telling them through that experience, that's probably going to stick a lot longer than you telling them for sure. And patience. I think you and I and many others want to see change happen at, at a quicker rate than it actually unfolds yeah. and trying to rush that along and, and being able to have the patience of the reality of things and change isn't as quick as we want them to be. I guess it's a cliche that patience is a virtue, but it's a cliche for a reason, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. That. And, and I love what you're hitting on here in terms of being able to you know have an outlet or to be able to turn it off. I find that myself, I tend to carry the busy brain of work home with me and where I'm trying to be present with my kids or my wife or whatever I'm doing outside of work. And there I am with work in my head. That's not good. That's not doing anyone a service. And, you know, it's not going to make me better when I do return back to work and, and leading to burnout. And for me, especially as of late with our technology, you know, having 24 seven access to everything out there that's going on in the world, you know, on top of work, managing my inputs, what am I choosing to be putting into my head and into my heart that's out there in the world? For me, I think what's being broadcasted more than ever is just pure straight negativity. Yeah. And so what am I going to do? Am I going to have my input being what's being amplified out there? Because it's not necessarily what you're bringing. You know, is a lot of positivity, a lot of nurturing, a lot of care, a lot of service. That's not being amplified. You of know, outside not. of yeah. yeah. And, and so I should have that input, yeah. you know, if it's going to be fair to the reality of the world, there's a lot of service going on. There's a lot of caring, empathetic people that are out there nurturing others, putting others in, ahead of themselves. And, and so I want to make sure I'm having those inputs as well going on. And then, yeah, hopefully having the right outputs as well that I'm processing a lot of the things that are going on out there. And I think what you're hitting on there, I think universally is something that we all need to pay attention to. What are we putting in our heads? What are we putting in our hearts? And, and being able to turn that off or at least pivot, you know, here and there is healthy for all of us. Yeah. So Brian, I, I asked this of all of our guests and I would like to get your take in on mm-hmm. what this means, but what does the independent life living independently mean to you? Wow. 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 How do you define independent life? I think for me, independent life is being able to make the choices you want to make, good or bad, and being able to achieve things. And I think where we sometimes have a misnomer is what we believe is achieving things. Perfect example I will give, um, like I said, I'm in a wheelchair. I'm never going to cut my grass. Not that I think I want to cut my grass, but having the know-how to at least how to call somebody or getting a lawn care service, that is independent living. I was able to do that on my own and be able to come up with the solution. So I think independent living is like I said, just being able to make those choices on your own that some take for granted one way or the other and being able to be what we wanna be. And it doesn't mean always being right either. Like I said, independent mm-hmm. living is making wrong choices too. Guess what? That's right? that's part of life. That is sure. that is a large part of life. So it's just, like I said, no, as you said, Tony, nobody's gonna to be hundred percent all the time. So listen, 
You take the L's when you have the L's, but you take the W's, you ain't get the W's, but just being able to be that person, being able to do what you want to do, being able to have input in the choices that are being made about you. I think that's, to me, the truest definition of independent life and independent living is just kind of being able to be what you want to be and being able to do what you want to do. Well said, Brian. I love how you're going in on allowing people to have the independence to make wrong decisions. This is where the learning happens. You know, that's where the growth happens. It's not necessarily a failure or a mistake if we learn a lesson right. you know, from it, right? And we can grow. So I love your answer there. And I want to acknowledge you, Brian. I met you early on at the Governor's Hurricane Conference, and you made a really good impression on me coming in you know, with what you have in this whole interview, someone that's very open and uh, engaging, wears your heart on your sleeve, when you came to help give us some technical assistance about growing a brand new program that we never had before, without hesitation, you said yes. When we communicated with you, you were so open and honest and very informative. And now we have gone beyond and grown our program and have been taking on <laughs> yeah, consumers from the brain and spinal cord injury program. And, and your insights had really helped us to ascend the learning curve your, your tenure there in Broward and with the independent living movement and what you've done there, your ability to advocate even long before you came on and to make change at a university, to live your life as your mom instilled within you, a life that you know, sees that you can do everything you know, that your non-disabled peers can do in many areas and to be okay with not being able to do other things as well. Having a high degree of humility, focusing on your strengths, you know, just bringing who you are into the world and into what you do and interacting with people. Um, I got to tell you, it is, is very inspiring on my end. And I wanted to acknowledge you for that. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. Like I said, I, I, I've truly enjoyed it. Um, it. It was a lot of fun. I mean, like I said, I, I, I believe, like I said, wholeheartedly, knowledge is power. It does no good keeping it locked up in your head and not sharing with others. Um, I, I, I truly do believe in the mantra of paying it forward and paying it back. So mm. I've been blessed. I've had a lot of great mentors in my life as well. People who have shared things with me. And I, I really do believe that's the only way you really will get changed, though. If you just keep things to yourself and not everybody else get the Lord and kind of share it, then how do you get the change you're seeking and wanting to see have happen? So it really is so, so core of a component in terms of kind of just be the change you want to see, if you will, so to speak, and kind of do what, as the golden rule says, do unto others you want them to do unto you. I mean, I really do genuinely think those things are so, they're so simple, but they're so important and so just earth shattering. So I really do kind of try to go by those philosophy and stuff like that, if you will. Let's bring out with what's inside into the world, that yeah. gift that you have right there, treating others like we would want to be treated huge couldn't say it any better i gotta wrap there because like i'll just mess it up <laughs> and and i want to leave it with the force that you bring there brian johnson thank you so much for joining us today once again thank you for having me appreciate it <laughs> all right until the next time onward and upward thanks for listening to the independent life podcast brought to you by the center for independent living of north central florida if you like what you hear please rate review and subscribe and if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474.
Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.